Now, if you would, please take a Bible in hand and turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 8, you're 10 chapters too early. If you're using a Bible in the pew rack, you want to turn to page 877. There are two parables that begin Luke 18. We'll look at the second in verses 9 through 14. If you were here last week, um, a major application from uh, Pastor Jason's sermon was the recognition and the exhortation um, to think about the cross, the recognition that we don't think about the cross enough, and the exhortation to. Um, here, in, in a break from that series in Matthew, for one week, I want to serve that purpose and look at a parable reminds us of our need for the cross and the need that our very hearts have for beholding our Savior on the cross and seeing His work and the necessity of it. The two parables that begin Luke 18, one is the persistent widow. Um, This is a widow who goes to a judge and pleads for justice. Um, it's a parable about faith and faith's determination. The second parable is one of the Pharisee and the tax collector, uh, two men who go into the temple to pray. Uh, one leaves right with God, the other uh, leaves and is not right with God. And from there, and from the tax collector, we see in this parable the humility of faith. Before I read, God's word this morning. Let us go to him and ask for his help in prayer once again. So please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come to your word and we recognize our need for help to understand it. We thank you that you have promised your Holy Spirit for all who ask, and so we ask for your Holy Spirit's help this morning. That as your word is read and as it is expounded, that you may speak to our hearts what you have inspired in your word, that we might gaze upon the glory of our Savior, that we might increase in our understanding of who you are, that we might know you and walk with you, and that we might live for your glory as we grow in the grace of our Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of God from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, 
would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. The greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second greatest commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. One is the priority, but they are linked. A consequence of a life aimed at loving God first and above all else induces a love for those made in God's image. The order is important. God first, people second, but the two greatest commandments, they go together. The way we treat others indicates something about our relationship with God. This shows up again and again in the scriptures. Here are a couple examples where we see the link between the first and the second commandment. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 through 21. This is addressed to Christians. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. John is saying, don't be deceived. Don't make a false claim to love God if you can't love your fellow Christian. Husbands, this one's for you. It's from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. There the apostle addresses the husbands, saying, Likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, don't be deceived. You think you're going to have sweet fellowship with the Lord in prayer, but you're insensitive and demeaning to your wife? You go from prayer to being rude and obnoxious to your precious wife? There's something amiss. There's something off. Your prayers will be hindered. Here's one for worship from the Sermon on the Mount in Jesus. Matthew 5, 23, 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If there's hostility between worshipers, there won't be freedom in worship and these things, conflicts, offenses, bitterness need to be addressed. You're relating to God and you're relating to others is not mutually exclusive. The way we treat others indicates something about our relationship with God. And here Jesus, in telling this parable, this is another case where we see the, the linking of the two great commandments, if you would. That the way we think and treat others 
reveals something of our heart towards God. That's where Jesus and Luke here recounting Jesus' intent for the parable, we are steered that way. We are told who the audience is and the purpose of the parable there. Look back at verse 9. He, being Jesus, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, many would say that the Pharisees were the first audience that Jesus had in mind, but it, it's not the case. There may be Pharisees who were included in this audience, but the audience are those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Oftentimes, you and I, we find ourselves in such an audience. And as Jesus identifies contempt of others, he's identifying a symptom of a terrible sickness. A sickness that demonstrates that something is amiss with your relationship with God. So that's the first thing I want us to see, particularly from verse 9, that contempt is a terrifying symptom. Understand that this parable isn't just to condemn showing contempt towards others, but contempt shows a greater problem. What does contempt mean? To make an account of someone a low account, no account of them, to despise them. It's to think of someone as beneath consideration or even worthy of scorn. That is what treating someone else with contempt is like. And you and I are very vulnerable to it. Contempt shows up in different degrees in our lives, sometimes in ways that are more troubling than others. Sometimes it just happens to us. You're somewhere and you see someone wearing the colors of a rival team. And immediately there is a prejudice that rises up in you because they have those colors on. There is contempt. There shouldn't be necessarily. You don't know them. They could be just a really great guy. For all you know, they could be a brother and sister in the Lord. But because they are wearing maize and blue or whatever the team that would stir up contempt in you, it stirs up contempt. Or maybe you've had this experience. You thought someone was a friend. You thought you were peers, someone that you were proud to hang out with. And then you rode in their car and you saw their CD collection. Now, that's not really the way people ride in cars anymore. Um, most of the time, it's Bluetooth, and most new vehicles don't even offer a CD player. But there was a time where you would sit down in someone's car, maybe for the first time, you grab their CD booklet or their CDs were there on their visor, and you looked up, and you're like, I don't know if I could be a friend with someone who listens to Nickelback. <laughs> or the Bee Gees, or... Backstreet Boys, whoever it may be. Here Jesus is pointing to contempt that is a serious symptom of a deadly cancer. What is that cancer? It's the cancer of self-righteousness. There's a great self, uh, definition of self-righteousness there. Who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. To be self-righteous is to believe that you are good enough or done enough to be accepted by God. And the way that contempt works with self-righteousness and exposes self-righteousness is that 
deep down you know you're not good enough and you can't do enough. But if you can find someone that you believe that you're better than, ah, it bolsters your self-righteousness. You find someone to compare yourself to. Someone in order to validate your belief in your own righteousness. I must be on guard against self-righteousness. You must be on guard against self-righteousness. What is the ultimate danger of self-righteousness? Is that when it goes unchecked, it convinces you that you're accepted by God when you're not. When you're not right with God. So if you have contempt for others, does that unveil a heart of self-righteousness? And when we speak about contempt today, we're quick to thinking about what happens online, on social media, where people go back and forth in our day of identity politics, where you find out someone doesn't exactly line up where you are on everything, and it's not a matter of agree to disagree, it is you are my enemy, and where literal neighbors become literal enemies because of the contempt that is pervasive and promoted in our country and our culture, that's that's sad. That's tragic. But the contempt that we find in this parable is even more tragic. Because think about the context of this parable. These are two men who've come to the temple to pray together. And one has contempt for the other who is there with him in worship. Look how contempt rears its ugly head demonstrating the Pharisee's self-righteousness that here is a man in his congregation that he is belittling in order to exalt himself, to justify himself, to hold himself up. Here it is in prayer that his contempt finds expression. Woe to us and how Grievous is it to have contempt for one another within the family of God. Contempt is a symptom of self-righteousness and we must pay attention how we view others. And the danger of self-righteousness is the second thing I want us to see. The danger of self-righteousness is that it leads to false assurance. You can think about verses 10 and 12. And here we begin with thinking about the man, the Pharisee. We're told that there are two men. They both come to pray. And so we consider both of their prayers. First, the, prayer, the Pharisee. Now this is one of the ways that Luke, in preserving and recording and sharing Jesus' teaching for us, he draws out one of the ways that Jesus really drove a point home to his audience. And some of you may remember me telling you this before, that one of Luke's literary techniques he really wants to, to, to show you is how Jesus used the surprise when he told the story. And that's how he drove his point home. But the surprise is somewhat lost on us because we're 
have some familiarity, most of us, with this parable in some sense. And so we're inclined to immediately think Pharisee, bad guy, tax collector, good guy. But that wasn't the case. No, that's the surprise that it was the Pharisee who went home and wasn't justified. That would have been a surprise because for the, the audience of Jesus' parable, the Pharisee was the, the pillar of the community. The Pharisees, they were a lay movement among Jews. And that they were the ones, they weren't the elite ruling class. They weren't the super wealthy. They were the devoted ones. And they were devoted to God's law and to God's word. And so think of the most admired person you know from your life. Maybe, or maybe it's someone you studied in history that you hold up on a pedestal as a moral example that you would hope that your kids would aspire to be like. Someone that you look up to. This is what the audience would have heard when Jesus said a Pharisee. And so when they hear that the Pharisee begins to pray, they're taking note. This would be a good prayer. We should pray like this. And that's what Jesus turns on them. Here, the Pharisee begins his prayer and his prayer very quickly demonstrates his self-congratulating pride and exalting of himself. But before we get too far into the prayer, we do need to notice that this man, if you look back there in verse 11, he begins with God. The prayer begins pretty good. God, I thank you. It's off to a good start. Here, this is helpful for us to see that in this man's self-righteousness, he didn't exclude any need for grace. No, he, there's a recognition of the grace of God in his life. He recognizes part of the reason why I am the man that I am is because of God. And he begins with giving thanks. Self-righteousness and false assurance itself, there could be a recognition for grace. The problem is that underestimates how much grace we actually need. See, this Pharisee, he's not a, a, a Pelagian. Pelagius was a 5th century British monk who denied original sin and believed that people were born innocent without the corruption of sin and therefore could live fully obedient lives to God. Basically, man had the capability to live a sinless life in Pelagian's view. No, he's not a Pelagius. He understands that, no, he owes to God thanks for even the righteousness that he is exercising. No, he's not a Pelagius follower. He's more, this Pharisee is what we see in the Roman Catholic tradition. Roman Catholics believe that salvation comes through grace but it's grace plus effort. Grace plus participation in the sacraments of the church. Grace plus that leads to justification and sanctification. What's absent is the adjective alone. That salvation is coming 
by grace and by grace alone. That's the difference between Protestants and Roman Catholics. And this is what is missing from this Pharisee's prayer. There's the recognition of grace, but he doesn't have the adjective alone. What does he thank God for? Well, he thanks God for good things, that he's not an extortioner, that he's not a cheat. He thanks God that he is unjust, that he is honest in all his dealings. He thanks God that he is not an adulterer. This man is faithful to his wife. Here, he is defining his righteousness by what he abstains from. He's saying, I'm righteous because I don't do these things. And to be clear, the world would be a much better place if we had more men like this Pharisee. If we had men who were faithful to their families, faithful to their wives, men who acted with integrity in all their dealings, men who did not extort or did not take advantage of the vulnerable, the world would be a better place. The problem is that it's a shallow righteousness. Because you and I, to some extent, can constrain ourselves in outward obedience but not have hearts that delight in God and delight in His righteousness and are doing these things for His glory. There are good motives to be a good businessman, but you can do that and do that apart from the grace of God. There are very good reasons to stay faithful to your spouse and you can do that as an unbeliever because the consequences of divorce are expensive and they hurt and it's painful. And so therefore, there's other motives. And it would appear that this man has other motives for his obedience and it would appear that the motive is exalting himself. And that's evidence in his quick contempt for the tax collector. Then in verse 12, it's not just what he abstains from that he has built up this mound of self-righteousness. It is what he has gone above and beyond to do. There it says that he fasts twice a week. Now, fasting in the Jewish law was only required on the Day of Atonement. This man fasts, most likely observing the Tuesday and the Thursday fast. Here, his devotion to God isn't just meeting the expectations of God's law, but actually it's hit him in his stomach. He has gone above and beyond. He is demonstrating that he is serious, so much so that he would abstain from food. But it's not only that it hits him in his stomach, it also hits him in his wallet that he is going above and beyond. He is a, a super tither. The Pharisees were devout with their wallets, they combed through the Old Testament and they looked for every prescribed tithe. And as far as we could tell, most Pharisees were tithing somewhere north of 20% of their income. This guy, it may have even been more than that because he says, I tithe all that I get. It would insinuate that he's not just merely in tithing his income, but all the intake. So Whatever he profits off from whatever business he's in, he gives a tithe. But then when he goes and spends his money at the market and he brings something home, then those things he brought home, lettuce or whatever it is, he tithes from that as well. Something that someone else has already tithed on. He's a super tither. He's gone above and beyond. He is 
into works of supererogation, more than duty requires. And here he has built up this case. But as Jesus informs us, the grounds of his assurance are false assurance. His prayer shows us that he underestimates his need for grace. He is emphasizing what he is able to outwardly avoid without doing the deep work of devotion from his heart. He celebrates where he has gone above and beyond. But in fasting and giving extra money, he can do that without walking in fellowship with the Lord. Now, when we hear Pharisee, we tend to think hypocrite. It's important to recognize that in this parable, this man is not presented as a hypocrite. He has done much that is righteous. A hypocrite is someone who plays the part, who talks a good game, but when no one is looking, they live the opposite. It would appear that this man is, in a sense, speaking with integrity when he makes these claims about his own righteousness. The problem is that it's not enough righteousness to cover his sins. The problem is not that he's a hypocrite, it's that he's self-deceived. He believed he is right with God based on what he has done. And he's in a very scary situation where there's nothing in his conscience that is driving him to God, pleading for mercy. Proverbs 30 verse 12 says, There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their own filth. Peace and conscience can be a gift of the gospel truly. But we cannot rely on looking to our conscience alone to give us assurance that we are right with God. This man left, the Pharisee left the temple believing that he was justified. And he wasn't. We must be careful how we view ourselves. As Robert Murray McShane put it, the seeds of all sins are in my heart. And perhaps all the more dangerously, I do not see them. All sins. Do you believe that about yourself? That if it wasn't for restraining circumstances or the restraining of the Holy Spirit, that you could be given to all sins? The seeds of all sins are in each of our hearts. Now before moving on from this Pharisee's prayer, we do need to recognize a snare here. We must not be too quick to identify with the tax collector and kick the Pharisee to the curb. That's what I want to do. Maybe you want to do that too. No, there's a snare here that you and I speed on by and we become self-righteous about not being self-righteous. Maybe we find ourselves saying, God, I thank you 
that I'm not like that self-congratulating, self-exalting, prideful, self-righteous Pharisee. We must be careful how we view ourselves. Where do we find help? Well, Jesus in this passage points us to the prayer of the tax collector for help and for guidance. There, Jesus describes a different posture in a different location. This Pharisee has put himself prominently somewhere in the temple up front in the hour of prayer. But this tax collector, he must have been a Presbyterian because he wanted to be in the back and sit. But for different reasons that many of you like to sit in the back as prime seats. This man wasn't there for the attention of others. Not saying that those who sit in the back. Anyway, this is, this is devolving. <laughs> He's there in the back because he doesn't believe he belongs in the front. He addresses himself to God as the sinner. He's there before God. Now, in the English it says a sinner. In the Greek, there's the definite article, and this will be a time that it's appropriate to supply it because it gives insight into this man's prayer. He's saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Surrounded by others, but unlike the Pharisee, he's not concerned with the sins of others. He's not concerned with what others think about him. Remember that the tax collector if the Pharisee is upheld as the ultimate example for the Jews of a moral and upright man, the tax collector is the complete opposite of that. He is despised universally by his countrymen because as a tax collector, he is working for the Roman government that is oppressing the Jewish people and he is collecting taxes and collecting a little bit above the taxes required in order to fatten his own pockets. So here is a Jew getting rich off of Roman occupancy and Roman dominance of the Jewish people. It's a wonder that he would even step foot in the temple. But he does. And we see so that there is a, a sense of desperation in this man. It's not that he arrived in the temple that day that he is trying to show some sort of face that people would see him there and say, maybe he's not that bad of a tax collector. He's come to pray. No, it would seem that by his posture, his place, his prayer, that he has been driven to the temple to seek God out of desperation. And so he stands there beating his chest over and over again. This is not something that men normally did in prayer in the temple. Normal posture of prayer in the temple was to stand when lift your eyes towards heaven. This man is bowing his head, beating his chest. Jews, they would beat their chest in public when something was terribly grievous. And so in Luke chapter 23, the crowds that saw Jesus die on the cross and they don't understand what happened. They might have gone out to the crucifixion that day to mock Jesus and they come away confounded and grieving over what they just witnessed. They leave, it says, in Luke 23, beating their chest. And here this man, 
grieving over his sin and desperation, has slipped into the temple, beating his chest, crying out to God, saying, I'm the sinner. And when he cries for mercy, he uses an interesting word. He says, be merciful to me. And this mercy he is asking for is not simply, I am in need and you are able to help. It's not just a cry for help. It's more than that. There is the common use of mercy that you see in different places in the scripture, but this is a more technical use of the term mercy. It is equivalent to saying, make atonement for me. It is the word hilasterion. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, there the writer of Hebrews uses the word, and in our English translation, it's translated propitiation. Propitiation, that the wrath of God is appeased by a sacrifice. This is his cry for mercy. It's most likely during the evening offering where the priest is bringing the, the daily offering, the sacrifice before the altar. And here this tax collector who slipped in, who's barely lifting up his eyes occasionally, he's glancing forward and saying, that offering up there for sin, I need it. God, would you make atonement for me? Could there be a sacrifice for my sin? There's nothing I can do. You must provide. That is a sense of this man's prayer. J.C. Rollins said, the right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. And this tax collector seems to have been brought to a knowledge of his sin and his only hope in a sacrifice in his place. We must pay attention how we view others. We must be careful how we view ourselves. And we can have true assurance by looking to Christ alone for justification. This man brings nothing to the temple to commend him to God and leaves justified not because of what he offered, but because what Christ himself would offer for sinners like him. Jesus stands as the son of God telling this parable and says, I'm the one who determines who's just and who is condemned. Who will be justified? That is my determination because I'm the one who will give the sacrifice, make the atonement that sinners like this tax collector need. And to be clear, when Jesus speaks of one man going justified home and the other man not going home justified, the point of the parable isn't saying, if you want to be justified, don't hold others in contempt. The point of the parable is saying that if you find in your heart contempt for others, question what you are leaning on for your justification. Because those who've been justified by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, they see their fellow sinner differently. And to be clear, we could go even further that when Jesus says that Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It is not saying that 
humility is in place of righteousness. It's saying that those who are trusting in Christ alone, they find themselves so humbled because there's nothing that they can offer. So we affix our attention to the cross of Jesus. And in doing so, we can leave behind false assurance and in the cross find a sure cure for self-righteousness. There beholding what our sins deserved and the price our Savior paid. And from Him and from Him alone, receiving the gift of pardon and His righteousness. It's often quoted and it's appropriate. It's a good reminder from Augustus Top Lady, from his hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. Amen. Let's ask for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask for forgiveness. Oh, forgive us if we thought we could in our own righteousness contribute anything meriting salvation. Oh, forgive us if we have looked down upon others considering ourselves is more holy, more righteous than they, and therefore more deserving of your favor and love. Everything we have comes to us by way of gift. Everything that we have comes to us not because we deserve it, but by your sovereign grace purchased by the blood of your own Son. And so may we exalt in him alone May we find no boasting in ourselves, but only boast in the cross of our Lord and lay aside our filthy rags and receive His righteousness and know the rest and peace and assurance that comes from trusting in Christ and Him alone. In His name we pray. Amen.